Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. If you would, stand once more with me as we read God's Word. Get your exercise in for the day, huh? Beginning of verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come to thee, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Father, we thank you once again for this day. We thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that your word, what we know not, you would make us, you would teach us, and what we are not, that you would make us. That, Father, our lives would be lived in consistency with our profession of faith. May you be glorified this morning. Amen. Well, we have been working through these churches in Revelation, taking a break from Hebrews, and we are now in the book of, or in the church that is in Sardis. And this church could actually go by many names. This could very well be the attractional church, or the attractional church. That is, the church that does things so the world will be attracted to it via light shows, via changing music, changing whatever they can. It could be the program-driven church, those churches that are driven by programs to attract people in. Or it could even be the pragmatic church. That is the church that does whatever is necessary. And they, they, they fail to realize, though, that it is the Spirit of God that builds His church. Jesus Christ told Peter that I will build my church. That is, they simply do the things that work to build their churches as someone would build a corporation, right? They do the things that, are ne- that, that may not be necessary, but if you're going to be viewed as a successful church, then you've got to have as many people coming as you want or as you need to. The, those that would build a church in this manner are going to make some doctrinal compromises. Uh, understand, people that, that try to just build these conglomerate of churches, there's compromises that they're going to have to make. And usually they begin with doctrine. In my curiosity this week, and, and I do this from time to time when I hear about a particular church someone may mention, I, I go to their website. And on those websites, there's usually an about button. And if you'll hit that about button, there's a drop down. 
And there will be things such as, you know, who the leadership team is, who the pastor is, and it will give uh, worship pastor, youth pastor, whatever. Um, and usually on that, on that drop-down, there's a what we believe uh, button. And you can go on that, and it's usually it will have their statement of faith. Typically, for Southern Baptist churches, it will just simply have be, uh, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is the document we've been going through on Wednesday nights. <clears throat> there was a particular church that I I done a search on and I went to their website and I couldn't find anywhere on what they believed about anything. Now, in, in these beliefs in this statement of faith, they will tell you what they believe about the scripture. Whether it they believe in the in the inerrancy of scripture that it was with, without error or they believe in the sufficiency of scripture that it is enough for us to, to guide us in, in all matters of faith and practice. They, they tell you what they believe about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They tell you what they believe about salvation. That, and they will go through a list of things. Some are more generic than others. Some are more detailed than others. But nonetheless, there's typically a place on that website where you can go and they'll tell you what they believe. And I was actually quite shocked, maybe not, but about this one church that they didn't have that. But what they did have on that website was the type of music that they were going to have as, in order to reach a particular um, demographic of people that they were ministering directly to. Now, I thought to myself, wow, you really limit yourself when you make that declaration up front. Because you limit yourself as to, um, to, to all different kinds of people. Matter of fact, in this room this morning with the people that are here, I promise you we all have various musical preferences or musical tastes. Some of us like more classical type music maybe. Some of us like more bluegrass type music or maybe more southern gospel or maybe more, more hymn type stuff. Maybe uh, some of us like more contemporary kind of music. And the realization is, is that if we say, hey, this is what we're going to be about as far as music goes, guess what? We just eliminated a bunch of Christians. We eliminated a group of people that God has brought to minister or may bring to minister to. However, if we make ourselves about the gospel and we have our doctrine set, then we can say, hey, this is what we're about. We are about the Word of God. We are about, my favorite phrase, the full counsel of God. We want to preach the full counsel of God. And if there's anything that I've learned in, in ministry is that, in particular, as far as music goes, you, you, you go with what you have. You use what God makes available to you. And so what God has made available to us is two guitars and a bass guitar. And that's sufficient. That's fine. We can still worship with that. And look, the realization is, is that we don't need a light show. We don't need drums and all those kinds of things to worship God because worship is not determined by the musical instruments. Music, actually, worship begins when you have your heart right with God. And you can come into this place and you can worship God if you have your heart right with God. The sad thing is while this church that I just mentioned is in close proximity to us. There are churches like this around the country. There are churches like this all over the country and maybe even around the world in the more developed parts of the world. And it's sad that they would limit themselves. See, these churches have an appearance of life and spiritual awakening, but they're really full of dead men's bones. 
You can go to some, some of these churches in, maybe in the bigger cities and whatnot and you go there and you see all these things happening and, and there, there's this appearance of life. There's a lot of activity going on. Stuff for the youth, stuff for the kids, stuff for this, stuff for that. And they'll, they'll wear you out with all the activities that they have going on. And one could say, man, there must be something happening here. But just because there's activity there does not necessarily mean there is spiritual life there. This church, Christ condemns this church at Sardis for its lack of witness, its lack of gospel witness. As a matter of fact, that's what we have seen that at even beginning in Ephesus that has been kind of the primary theme through these churches is that they had left off their gospel witness. They had left off those things uh, that, that, that God has put forth for us. It's lack of witness and it's compromise and it exhorts it to overcome this in order to inherit blessings of salvation. When churches begin to compromise then you're going to let all kinds of things in. And look, that's evident in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. I, I just, I, I'm not going to get on a, on a soapbox here, but the Southern Baptist Con- Convention is a dumpster fire right now. If you're keeping up with news and things that are going on, it is a dumpster fire. I mean, there are things happening that I never would have thought, thought would have happened. There's secrecy and things of that nature. And so if we need to pray that God... Uh, would expose those things. And whether they be in a... And look, the denomination, all it is, is churches cooperating together to push the gospel into the ends of the earth. But this church had issues similar to what we're seeing in the Southern Baptist Convention today. Notice our text in verse 1 of chapter 3. The first verse. Again, you have a, a, in your bulletin, you have an outline there. The relevant introduction... He says unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now let me say, there are not seven spirits of God. There are not seven stars. There are, this number seven is what? A a number of completion, right? Six days God created the earth. On the seventh day He rested. He showed that He was finished with all His work. And we see the common address to the pastors as overseers who faithfully feed the church of God from the table of His Word. My primary responsibility to Valley View Baptist Church is to set the table of God's Word before you that you could partake of that. That you could take that in, spiritually speaking, and that your life would be nourished by that. And this is through the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. So when he says, the one who has the seven spirits of God, what he's talking about is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says that be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit or with the Spirit. And then we see the relevant title that Jesus gives of Himself. He who has the Spirit. It is He, Jesus, who dispenses the Spirit to His pastors for the benefit and perfection of the church. That's why when I pray, I pray, God, that Your Word would go forth in power, that the Spirit would take the Word and apply it to the heart of you, of those that would hear. It's for the benefit and perfection of the church, for the growth and improvement of each church and each Christian. 
Again, the seven spirits speak to the fullness of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends forth from the Father. Notice what the Scriptures have to say in John 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. How is it we know what Jesus taught the disciples? We've got it right here. They recorded it as the Spirit brought that back to their remembrance. They recorded it in in, in the Scripture, what we have in the canon of Scripture. Holy men of God spake as they were moved along by the Spirit. So, and he says here that the Spirit will teach you all things. Then in John 15, 26 through 27, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. How is it you know that it's the Holy Spirit? Because he testifies of Jesus. He doesn't have you doing all kind of crazy things. He doesn't have you doing all kind of foolish things. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. How? Well, one, by regeneration. When God takes the heart of stone, puts the heart of flesh, puts His Spirit within you, what happens? You begin to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will testify of Christ. Then in Acts 2, verse 33... Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. He's speaking about what took place on Pentecost. Now, Jesus was limited by His physical body and that He couldn't be everywhere in one place. But at this moment, what the Holy Spirit does, at this moment, at Valley View Baptist Church, the Holy Spirit is with us here indwelling every believer and simultaneously is around the world indwelling believers around the globe. Folks, it's it's the Spirit coupled with the Word, the proclamation of the Gospel that gives life to the unregenerate. How is one saved? How has one come to faith in Christ? They hear the gospel with their ears. God gives them of His Spirit and they respond in repentance and faith. There's no program or, or even uh, or man-developed method that can replace the work of the Holy Spirit. You can give the illusion that the Spirit is at work with all these programs and whatnot, but no program can ever replace the work of the Holy Spirit. Hey, think about what we have seen in the church in the last 150 to 200 years. I really, and really, really, truly, Christianity has kind of been flipped on its head with the likes of, of Charles Finney and some others. But what do you think the church done 1,800 years prior? They relied on the Holy Spirit that the Word would go forth when it was preached and, the, and God would accomplish it by His Holy Spirit. John 3, 3, except a man be born again. He cannot see, he cannot comprehend the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God here, speaking of salvation. Again, the word born again literally means to be born from above. And if it's to be born again, I mean, you think about that process of, of that Christ saying you have to be born again. That is a work of the Spirit of God in your life. The Spirit saves. And look, a great picture of what takes place is Ezekiel 36. I think it begins around verse 21 and goes down through, oh, about verse 28 or verse 29. 
that God takes that heart of stone, He puts the heart of flesh, puts His Spirit, and what's the result of that is that you follow His commands. The Spirit saves. The Spirit seals. The, the Bible talks about the Spirit being the earnest or the down payment, right? You go buy a vehicle, you buy a house, you put a down payment on something. What does it do? It, it seals that, that contract, right? So you put that down payment. What is it that we, we have that we know that we have been saved? And that is the Spirit of God. That is what God has given to us here on this earth until we are glorified. The Spirit sanctifies. Titus talks about the, the washing of the water uh, of the Word and the Spirit sanctifying us. It sets us apart that we are a holy people unto God. But the Spirit also speaks. Listen to what John 6.63 has to say. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. There is a real sense when someone preaches the full counsel of God that the Spirit is speaking through that man. It is the Word coupled with the Spirit that renews the mind and heart of each regenerate believer. The same Spirit is available to you as well. Folks, the Holy Spirit is not just some superstitious thing that is only available to pastors or available to a few fanatics who would follow Jesus in that manner. The Holy Spirit is given to every believer who is born again, who is given that God Himself gives that Spirit. And even the service that we give to God is through the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit is available to us. Notice next in verse 1, at the end there, this penetrating evaluation. Actually, it begins in verse 9. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, at the end of verse 1. I know thy works. Again, we see the omniscience of God. We see that He knows all things. And these works, again, let me say, are those works that are done as a result of God-given faith. It is those things not done to, to gain favor with God, but those things that are done as a result of our having been born again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, I know your works, that you have a name or a reputation that you are alive, but you're dead. You've got this at reputation that, man, things are happening there. The Spirit is at work. You've got this reputation. And I was, I was reading a commentary this morning. It talked about that at one, they were kind of at some time living off their past reputation. That, that at one time they were a vibrant church. At one time they were a church that, man, you saw God working there. And they were living off of that past reputation. But there's really, we don't see any clear commendation given to this church other than there's a few who have not stained themselves with the world, with unholy living. He comes down pretty hard in regards to their, their faulty reputation. That, that they have this, this name that they're alive, that there are things going on there, but in reality, it was the other way, that they were actually dead. It's kind of like putting yourself forward as maybe a hard worker, but in reality, you're not. You, you do things just to get by with your job. Matthew Henry states, Hypocrisy and a lamentable decay in religion are the sins charged upon this church by one who knew her well in all her works. So they're saying, hey, we've got this name, this reputation that's alive, but actually we're, we're really dead is what the Scripture is saying, that, that the church was really dead. And they were living in hypocrisy. They were uh, really in decay at this point. 
In other words, your works are not worthy of your name. The church at Sardis had the appearance of life and yet was dead. Man, you, you think about that. That, that there are churches all over this country that, that have maybe a reputation and you could go to those specific churches and there seems to be a lot of, of activity. There seems to be life there. But when you begin to dig in and you begin to see what is actually going on, you see that it is a, a, a tomb that is full of dead men's bones. This was a church that most likely had a lot of activity. And look, it doesn't matter what kind of activity we have going on around here. If the Spirit of God is not here, then this place is dead. There was the perception of godliness, but no real power. They gave the idea that they were holy people. They gave the idea that they were living in a godly manner. But in reality, there was no real sanctification going on. And let me say this, that our failure to witness of the gospel of grace in the public square is a direct correlation to our lack of confessing our sin before God. Why? Because we are not in awe of God's grace. The the grace that we may kind of talk about when we talk about amongst one another, are you really in awe that God would bend to you and show you grace and mercy? Because that all would look like that I would confess my sin before Him and that I would testify to His goodness and His forgiveness as I get to experience His goodness and forgiveness. This whole church had, it was a facade, right? I mean, it was, it, it was the picture of a building and behind it was nothing. It was just props holding it up. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, verse 1 through 5, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents. This explains a lot of Christians in our churches today. There's no confession of sin. There's no languishing over their sin. Think about the last time that you actually mourned over your sin, that you saw your condition before God. What would it look like if you were in Walmart and all of a sudden your sinfulness hit you and you fell on your face in Walmart? Man, people look at you like you were crazy. But seeing that even that God, although God has redeemed us, we are still prone to wonder and we are still prone to sin. And that we would confess that before God that we would be a holy and peculiar people before Him. Let me say one more time that activity does not necessarily mean spiritual life. I know of a church right now that there is a lot of activity. A lot of activity. There's things for kids, things for infants, things for adults, things for every every age group you can imagine. There is something going on. But they are full of false doctrine. They don't preach a gospel of grace. They really preach a gospel of works. But someone would look at that and say, man, that place must be full of the Spirit of God. I have a friend that's an undertaker. And you know, just in that kind of business, it doesn't matter what you do to a body, to a corpse, to make it presentable to those that would come and view it. Guess what? It's still a corpse. It still does not have the spirit that was in them at one time. It's still just a corpse. And it won't take long. That corpse will begin to decay. 
what the undertaker puts forth before us and we get to look at as we pass by in just probably a few months, maybe less than that, will not at all resemble what we looked at. It will begin to decay. And folks, while we can make things look okay on the outs- to people on the outside of our church, if we're not confessing our sin, if we're not giving attention to doctrine, if we're neglecting the gospel witness, if we're neglecting those things, guess what happens? We're like that corpse. We're dead on the inside. We're decaying on the inside. We're not doing the things, the commands that God has given to us. The Word is vital to the ministry of the church. The Word and the Spirit are vital to the ministry of the church. Why? Because it guides us in our life. It it, it calls unbelievers to repent. It calls believers to repent. And the evidence of the Spirit is when that takes place. It is the source of all truth. The Bible is the source of all truth. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever stop and consider as you go about your activities during the week what the reputation of Valley View Baptist Church is? Is it a place that is known that loves people? Is it a place that is known that, man, those people love to share the gospel? You give them a you give them a, a crack the door and they'll they'll kick it open with the gospel. Is it a place that is known of great fervency and the spirit is at work, or is it just that little white church on the side of one hundred three going to Spanish Fork? Folks, that's something we need to consider. What is our reputation? What would God be saying to Valley View Baptist Church if He was to write us a letter? Would we be condemned for our our false reputation? Would we be condemned for our hypocrisy? Would we be condemned for tolerating false doctrine, false teachers, and tolerating sin and not calling one another to repent? Would would we be known as a church that loves not only one another, but loves the outside world around us? Does it even cross your mind as to the reputation of Valley View Baptist Church. It, it ought to. Why? Because we are a, should be a herald for the gospel. We should be known for holy living and proclaiming the gospel. Notice next in verse 2 and 3 the corresponding exhortation. He's given them the stinging indictment based on their false reputation. He now gives them an exhortation of things they should do in light of that condemnation. History tells us that Sardis was captured twice because of their failure to be watchful. They most likely had not built walls around their city. They most likely had not set watchmen on the city, on the walls of that city. And so they were captured twice due to a negligence in being watchful for intruders. How many churches have been conquered due to a pastor or church member not being watchful of false doctrine, not being watchful to remain holy, not being watchful in their sanctification. You see, we play a part in one another's sanctification in Christ's likeness. We are to exhort one another. We're to provoke one another to godliness. But you know what? We can't do that if there's only a couple here and a couple there. And, and we can't do that if we're not fellowshipping together around the Word of God. It's no less truthful for our church. When we're no longer watchful, 
we will be conquered from within by false teachers. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to be out of town next week. Glenn Pierce is coming to preach. Are your ears going to be up listening for something that may have a question? Now, let me tell you this from, from just from past experience. If, if, if I'm going to be out of town, I'm going to get someone here that I can trust. Someone I know that's going to handle the Word of God in a way that pleases God. But suppose he gets up here next week and he just goes off the rails and he starts spouting false doctrine. Do you know enough of the Scripture and are you guided by the Spirit enough to know that what he says is false? Because if that happens, you need, you need to make a phone call. or well, First of all, you need to confront him after church. And it would be the same with me. If I was preaching, got up here one day and just went off the rails and started spouting false doctrine. Do you know enough to be able to confront someone about that? Sardis, though, had not completely died at this point. They probably were on life support. They may have had those machines hooked up to them that was somewhat keeping them alive. However, there was still life due to the faithful few that had continued to live godly. There was a few people there that had not stained their garments with the filth of the world. They they were being sanctified. And what follows in in this passage is a prescription that if you will restore complete, that will restore complete life to the church. Notice verse 2, the first thing he says. And what we'll see is a five-fold command of exhortation. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. They had not completely gone uh, uh, AWOL. They had not completely gone away from the truth. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. In these two verses, we see a five-fold command. Number one, be vigilant. The cause of their spiritual decline is they were no longer vigilant. They became lazy, lethargic, and apathetic. They no longer saw the need nor the urgency to hold fast to sound doctrine, to fight sin, and those that would seek to teach false doctrine. As a matter of fact, we see warnings throughout Scripture to remain faithful and watchful. Acts chapter 20, 29 through 31. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. For I know this. Paul says, I'm certain that this is going to happen. And we saw it in that first letter. That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock of God. Look, let me, let me tell you, false teachers do not have your best interest at heart. They have their own selfish desires at heart. Also from among yourselves. And he's saying, look, this is going to happen from within. This is going to come up from within you. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. A false teacher will never point you to God. He will always point you to himself. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And I have to wonder, 
So about, probably about 30 to 40 years later, after Paul said this, the letter was written to the church in Ephesus. And I wonder when they received that letter, if there were some going, saying to themselves and maybe saying amongst one another, Paul told us this would happen. Paul told us this was going to happen, and he labored to prevent that from happening. Folks, a pastor that does not labor to keep sound, uh, uh, false teaching out of the church is lazy and is in uh, violation of what his duty actually is. We see this warning in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He will re- Look, and he will devour those who are not sound in the faith. He can't take your salvation from you, but he can prevent a good testimony. <laughs> Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. If you don't have sound doctrine right, you will not respond correctly to suffering. Folks, we must always be vigilant, be watchful, and guard against apathy, lethargy, and and even death. Man, what a testimony, though, that this church has been here for 125 plus years now. That it's remained this long. That's not common for that to happen. And if we expect to continue at least in our lifetime, then we must be vigilant. We must look out for these things. Secondly, he says that they are to strengthen the things that remain. Their works were left wanting before God. The inward thing is wanting. Thy works are hollow and empty. Prayers are not filled up with holy desires. The prayers that they prayed together were probably just surface level stuff. That they probably were not praying for their own sanctification. They were probably not praying for the sanctification of others. They had probably got to a point where only the physical things were attracted and were filled with their and filled their prayers. Their alms deeds were not filled with true charity. In other words, they'd done things out of obligation, not of true, genuine love. For one another. Their Sabbaths, that is, their worships, were not filled with suitable devotion of our soul to God. I think about that this morning. When you came in this morning, as you woke up this morning and and you begin to contemplate um, being here this morning, was there devotion? Did devotion fill your heart? Did Did you come out of love for God? Or did you come out of some sort of mechanical duty? You see, our affections for God ought to be evidenced in our desire to be with the people of God that we might worship God Himself. The third thing He tells them is to remember. Recall your first affections. Let me ask you this question. Do you remember when you saw your need for Christ? When you saw that your sin had overcome you and all you, and all you could do was cry out to God for His mercy and His compassion. Do you remember the warmth that overtook you at that moment of feeling that forgiveness? Has it become dead? Has, do you not get excited when you get to tell your testimony of what God has done? Do you remember the weight of forgiveness being lifted off and the gratitude that you felt towards God? Is that same gratitude 
evidenced by how you pray and by how you give thanksgiving to God. Next, he says you need to hold fast. Let let me say this. The, The church at Sardis had fallen into the trap of cultural Christianity or what some would call churchianity, which is really another form of worldliness and not godliness. That there's this appearance, this idea maybe, this appearance that one is a Christian because they come to church. But as soon as they walk out their door, their life is lived in direct contradiction to the Scripture. And the reality is that there was no longer persecution from the pagans. Folks, if you're not being persecuted for being a Christian to some degree, you ought to ask yourself, what am I doing wrong or am I a Christian? Next, he says to hold fast. That is to attend to the requirements of the gospel and the call to obey the commands. Hold tightly. In other words, it, it's, it's kind of like grabbing someone around the head and holding them. And you're not letting, you put, almost put a choke hold on them. That's what it's talking about. Hold fast, hold tight. And then the last thing he says is repent. Turn from their neglect of the work of the Holy Spirit. Turn from their self-reliance. Turn from their apathy concerning holy living. Turn from their refusal to hear and obey the full counsel of God. Turn from their worldliness. Turn from their neglect of being filled with the Spirit of God. 1 John 1.9 is a verse that ought to be on our mind and in our heart and on our tongue constantly. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. So how does a church keep from dying? How is it that we can, can stay alive and we can keep from dying? Well, first, we need spirit-motivated and word-driven worship. Folks, there's a reason why I, I try to preach verse by verse. is that I want you to see how I feel about the Bible. I, I want you to see how I feel about the Word of God. And if that is not, if spirit motivated and word driven worship isn't present, you know what we're doing? We're just a bunch of voices in here singing. We need spirit motivated and word driven religion or ministry. I know people hate that word religion, but you know what religion is? It is the practice of what we say we believe. In other words, our almsgiving, our deeds that we do in the public aisle, that what we do before people. They're guided by the Spirit of God. They're guided by the Word that we are obeying God. But they're guided by our love for God. Spirit-motivated and Word-driven fellowship with Christ. I mean, do you truly and genuinely fellowship with Christ on a regular basis? I mean, in the morning when you wake up, do you say, God, thank you. Thank you for this day that you have given me thus far, that you have allowed me to breathe. And then we see the warning. He says, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief of the night, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. What's he going to do? He's going to take their gospel witness away from them. Remember in Ephesus we saw the one that walked among the candlesticks, the one that kept the light of the gospel going, and when they had left off their first love, he said, I will take it from you if you don't repent. It is a mercy of God and it is evidence of His long-suffering that He has allowed the gospel light to shine thus far. I will take your gospel witness away if you refuse to obey my commands and walk in my ways. Understand, folks, if we don't heed this word this morning, God's not obligated to keep our influence, this gospel witness in this community. 
And then he said, on top of that, you won't even notice that it's gone. I'll take it away, and you won't even notice that it's gone. I mean, are we aware of those things? Are those, do we contemplate those things? Notice verse 4. Lastly, number 4, the motivating benediction. He doesn't just leave them in despair. He doesn't leave them without hope. Notice what he says. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In other words, I have not taken your gospel witness away because there's a few people who have remained faithful to me. There are a few people who have remained faithful to be sanctified by the Word and to be sanctified by the Spirit. And they're worthy because of Christ. Verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. That's the perseverance that I've talked about. That is the, the faith that perseveres to the very end. He said there's a few godly people. Those who walk with God in their lifetime are worthy to walk with God after their death. I understand that for Christians, heaven is going to be continued worship. What we only experience in part down here, we will get to experience in fullness in heaven. Look, it's not about streets of gold. It's not about the river where we can lazily lay by. It's not about reclining in our mansion. It is about dwelling with God and worshiping Him forever. Look, these, 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 and these are encouragements to the truly regenerate to persevere no matter what. The unregenerate will hear it and be like, whatever, I'll do my thing. The regenerate, those who are saved, will hear it and will take heed and will examine themselves. Let me close with this. Why was this church on the verge of dying? Why were they essentially on life support? Because they had left off preaching the full counsel of God. Understand that God does His work through His Spirit and through His Word. Again, we could implement all the methods and all the programs that we wanted to, but if we leave off preaching the full counsel of God and being guided by the Spirit of God, it will only be a tomb full of dead men's bones. Folks, when we leave off doing things God's way, you know what it is? It's an exercise in futility. It's an exercise that's not going to produce any real genuine fruit. There was a lack of sanctification. They left off the command to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Look, for the Christian, the Word is central in all we do and believe. The Spirit guides us, He leads us, He equips us for this service. Let me close with this. It's not a matter of how much of the, whole, of, of the Holy Spirit that you have. Because every believer has the same... I mean, you've got this... If you're a believer, if you've been regenerated by God, you have the same Spirit that I have within me. The question is, how much of us does the Holy Spirit have? Or are we completely yielded to Him for whatever He may have for us in our life? Or are we just trying to wait around in the kiddie pool? getting our feet wet up to our ankles and we're content with that. Would we be a church that is guided by the Spirit of God and we're not just giving mouth service to this? Let's pray.